What's up, everybody? Um, this week, I am uh, uploading a live stream that I did a few months ago. I found these two stories that involved musicians that had had alien-like encounters. One of them involves the Moody Blues. Uh, the other one involves a Canadian musician who had had repeated abduction-like events in their life. So I'm going to release that this week. Next week... We're going to start a series over in the UK, and uh, it, it's going to be at least f four episodes, I'm, I'm predicting right now. But like, there's a lot of interesting cases that I found over there, and uh, I want to I wanna share them with you. But uh, yeah, this week, uh, you're in store for an interesting episode that, um, yeah, it goes places I didn't expect it to. There's kind of a content warning here for sexism there is some sexism in the articles that i was reading so uh just keep that in mind but uh yeah on with the show the theme for today in in this in this live stream because uh i try to i basically what i do with these is read ufo cases or their articles and stuff like that um music is the theme for today uh and and one particular case that i've always loved and i know i'm only going to touch part of it on the, on this particular live stream is the moody blues ufo encounter in 1967 now uh i do believe they've had more than one as I've been, I've been told, Stardog told me about a, a, another one that they had uh, with another article. But um, it's interesting. My my father was a huge Moody Blues fan. In fact, uh, my dad wasn't much of a like a collector of things. He wasn't very materialistic when it came to things. But one thing that he did collect was Moody Blues records. So it's interesting that uh, that they had. A UFO encounter. So let's, uh, this is an article by uh, Pete Wilshire from 1990. It was, I suppose, a stroke of luck that my music writing partner, Robin Lumley, was moving to a new place of residence, sharing a house with Graham Edge, drummer for the musical group, the Moody Blues. Although Graham is a long term pal of Robin's, I hadn't personally seen the talented Mr. Edge since the early 70s, and it was good to be in touch with him again. Both Robin and I have nursed a strong interest in the UFO phenomenon for many years, and so we're very interested to learn from Graham of a UFO encounter with the Moody Blues late one autumn night in 1967. Graham readily agreed to discuss the matter and recounted the story as follows. Quote, we the band were returning to London after a concert in Carlisle. I'd like to point out straight away that given the reputation from musicians for consuming alcohol and other substances after a show, all the Moody Blues personnel were completely sober and straight. 
the road crew had, as usual, taken the equipment in the truck and the band members were following along by car. Apart from myself in the car, there were Danny Lane, Mike Pinder, Ray Thomas, and Clint Warwick. Around about 1.30 to 2 a.m., we were driving on the A6 when a bright light appeared and flashed past us. Everyone became highly excited as to what the light might be, with the usual nervous, jokey references to UFOs. Personally, I was convinced it was probably an aircraft warning light on top of a radio mast, apparently moving because of the motion of the car. However, the light returned from the opposite direction, and I suggested stopping the car for a proper look. I was still convinced of a logical terrestrial explanation. As the car as the car halted, we all saw the light again to the left-hand side of us. It went backwards and forwards and then actually over the car before settling in a field near the road, but on the opposite side of a dual carriageway. As we scrambled out of the car, half scared, half fascinated, We all noted an odd stillness around us. No road traffic came in either direction, and there were none of the usual nocturnal animal rustlings or bird noises. It was quite uncanny, and we were mesmerized as if in a dream. This this is your typical, you know, kind of close encounter stuff. You have, um, like, the this is what we call the Oz effect. Essentially, this is the term that Jenny Randall's coined to describe kind of like this vacuum world that you're sent into when you have a UFO encounter. It's uh, it's, it's one of the most fascinating aspects to this entire phenomenon is how we're able to experience it almost in an entirely different reality. Um, we could see the object in the opposite field. It was shaped like a fat cigar with a low protrusion on top, with seven dull red lights on it. I'm sure of the number, as I distinctly remember counting the lights at the time. The upper half of the object appeared metallic, whereas the lower half was red and pulsed from left to right. I think what's interesting here is, like, uh, you know, we have the UFO right there. This is a UFO that, that, that I... I've read about before in in other publications and such. Uh, apparently, this is a you know another sighting uh, of something like that. I'm not like I can't think of the actual case that um, that this reminds me of. But the lower half was a bright red on the left and a duller red to the right, and did not seem to be metallic like the upper half which is which is interesting because like we're not dealing with the metallic craft what are we what are we dealing with and you know we have the oz effect happening here so that's interesting on top of all that's going on and and such but um suddenly all five of us were gripped simultaneously with dread and panic We rushed back into the car, which started perfectly and drove off. As we looked back, we could still see the object pulsing away in the field. That was the basis of Graham's account, and I continued to question him at some length. 
He was, and indeed still is, perfectly willing to answer any questions anyone may have, and he's certain the other band members would would be equally willing. Now, Graham has only recounted the story two or three times since the event over 20 years ago, and professes to be a changed man because of the experience, which is, again, not uncommon with a lot of uh, anomalous experiences. I am reading a book called Mysterious Beauty uh, by Dr. C.S. Matthews, and in it she does address that that aspect of it in which um, you have witnesses who go through these extreme kind of – well, maybe not extreme, but they go through these life changes. They, they Their lives – are different for their experiences. So um, it wouldn't surprise me that, uh, you know, in this way, that they, things are different. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of par for the course with these cases. Graham Edge describes himself as a stubborn, critical, nuts and bolts type. But nevertheless, he feels that something may indeed have happened that night. He doesn't recall any missing time, but as is typical of touring musicians, no one bothered to check what time they had arrived home. In those days, the Moody's were a, a rock pop band. But after this experience, they tended to write and release all kinds of cosmic albums, such as Days of Future Past and The Search for the Lost Chord. Yeah, they, they like... Moody Blues is probably known, you know, first and foremost and most well-known for um, Nights in White Satin. Like, that is probably, that and Tuesday Afternoon, I think, are the two songs that you hear most often uh, on classic rock radio when you hear um, the Moody Blues, as, uh, or it's like the, the late 80s stuff, Know You're Out There Somewhere, um, and that other song that I can't fucking remember um that that came from that but um yeah it's, it's it's interesting that um a ufo sighting kind of changed the course of you know the span's history but like um think of like the ufo imagery that uh was popping up in the late 60s early 70s in music think of you know, you, you've got Boston in the mid seventies. You've got the band UFO. You have, uh, you know, the like the Blue Oyster Cult kind of has like, you know, maybe not necessarily the most occultish vibes, but I mean, don't fear the Reaper and kind of their symbol, which that upside down question mark with the lines the dashes on either side of that up down, upside down question mark is, is is interesting uh but like ufos kind of seem to be present in album art definitely in the 70s you, you you see it over and over again and like it took me a while to realize that the art on uh you know the cover of boston's first album is actually a guitar upside down <laughs> which you know is is uh yeah, it's weird, uh, but but it looks like incredibly cool, like uh, you know, UFO shaped guitars. Hell yeah! Uh, something else of interest arose a couple of years later when Graham was asked mockingly, "What did the aliens look like?" Ha ha! 
In answer, he drew a sketch of what is now considered a typical small-bodied, large-headed entity. In those days, as far as I know, no such entities had been drawn by any witnesses in any book published at that time. In any way, Graham had never read any literature on the subject. He said that the sketch seemed to come from inside, referring to his mind, and that at the same time it seemed like a fun thing to do. Graham Edge is a very likable, friendly, outgoing man with a warm and generous personality remaining totally unaffected by 25 years of international pop stardom. He's pretty well off and has certainly had all the publicity he could want and more. So he has no motives for uh, imaginative invention for self-aggrandizement purposes. He's also not in the least afraid of being dubbed a crank. What happened, happened. And they all remembered it. Um, So we do have the sketch of the being. Um, Again, this article is in 1990, and and they're getting at, well, in the 60s, this uh, type of alien was not particularly well known. But, you know, it's your typical gray. Uh, Graham says he got a, a mental impression of this uh, figure, but like it's uh, yeah, it's, it's just your typical gray Um, just sending out thought beams and all that fun stuff. Uh, But yeah, like, uh, you know, Moody blues, one of my dad's favorite bands. And uh, (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I dig it. Um, So the second article I want to read, and these are both from Flying Saucer Review. Like, Flying Saucer Review is is my go-to a lot of the time, because they're, they seem to have, like, top-notch reporting. It's not to say that the April Bulletin didn't, and uh, you know, uh, I would say to a slightly lesser extent, uh, uh, NICAP, you know, like, I, I think NICAP did good work, but when I think of the UFO reporting back in the day, it's usually FSR and the APRO Bulletin, but uh, I don't really want to take anything uh, away from them. But uh, the name of this article is, and, and this is the uh, episode, this is an episode I, I wanted to do with, with Brian, but uh, Brian's like, you know, that's, that's pretty par for the course, uh, but it's uh, Canadian rock band Abducted. Uh, and this is a case from 1980. It's interesting. It's it's pretty interesting. The Canadian UFO Research Network, QForm, has investigated a series of incidents that it feels is proof that some people are abducted more than once. And, uh, you know, this article comes out in 1984, the 1984 issue. And it's written by Lawrence J. Fenwick, Harry Tokars, and Joseph Muscat, uh, all investigators with QForm. And at this time, you see the identity of abductions start to become a thing. Uh, you know, Missing Time was published in 1981, four years before this article was even published. And that book doesn't actually have a copy of it right here. I'll snag it off the shelves for you. Uh, Missing Time by Bud 
Hopkins. Um, you can find this. It's actually been reprinted. Uh, so you can get it online now on Amazon and shit like that uh, in Kindle format and stuff. But for the longest time, the only way you could get your hands on this book is by buying ridiculously priced copies of it online uh, on eBay and shit. But uh, this book kind of starts the transformation of how abduction cases are viewed in in uh you know like uh for instance we start to see more and more of these like gray like beings uh most of these guys are like the travis ones that travis walton interacted with um uh steve kilburn one uh steve kilburn's not his real name i can't remember his name off the top of my head the witness uh, i think his name is like mike something but um so ted seth jacobs goes on to create this image for the steve kilburn abduction now what's interesting is ted seth jacobs is the guy that created the cover for this book same guy and it's interesting that not only is it Bud Hopkins, okay, and Whitley Strieber that have such a big influence on the UFO community and and in particular with abductions, but at the same time, Ted Seth Jacobs, kind of the guy that like pretty much put uh, abductions kind of on the map for what they would become. These things that were experienced through familial lines and, uh, you know, were repeated incidents over and over again throughout the course of someone's life with medical exams and, and stuff like that. And while some of that was already, you know, within the community and stuff, still you have one guy creating an image for the cover of a book influencing that community so much because when you crack the book, in particular, you find three beings that three or four beings that Whitley Streeper interacts with. The one on the cover is the uh, is kind of like his handler is, is the best way to put it. That's a woman. The reason that her skin is that color is because she's old. Um, you kind of don't get it. Uh, and dear God, that that image haunted people. You can't tell me that it didn't. Um, but in the book, Communion, Whitley Strieber interacts with that figure, interacts with these, you know, short blue uh, troll-looking things, as he describes them. And he interacts with beings that does look like that that female alien, except... They don't have slanted eyes. They have big, black, round eyes, and they have this big, black, round mouth, and that's not a common feature. That was something that he experienced, but that cover spoke to a lot of people and has said, I have experienced something like that. So, you know, in, in 84, the that image of the abduction as something that... Um, you know, runs in those family lines, 
or generally involves multiple events, was not a common feature in 1984. It wouldn't become that until 1987 when, you know, Whitley Strieber publishes Communion. And that's also the year that Bud Hopkins, uh, apparently half of this live stream is me pulling books off my shelf. And Bud Hopkins, the same year, a little bit later, because Whitley published his in like, uh, I think like February or something like that. Uh, Bud Hopkins publishes Intruders. Now, Intruders introduces the idea of um, uh, alien-human hybrids, the uh, the um, missing pregnancies and stuff like that. That comes from this. That comes from uh, Debbie Cobble's experiences. And again, you can you can get a copy of this now. It's reprinted. You can get it through Amazon. I suggest getting your hands on uh, Debbie's books. Uh, she's written a couple of them. Um, one of them is just uh, called Abducted. Uh, she wrote it with her sister. Uh, she also recently put out a book that it, that is definitely worth uh, talking about. So we go to 1984. Canadian rock band Abducted. Lawrence J. Fenwick, Harry Tokars, and Joseph Muscat. The Canadian UFO Research Network, Q4, has investigated a series of incidents that it feels is proof that some people are abducted more than once. The following case is given in our Q4 bulletin, October, November 1982. So, again, October, November 1982, those features of the abduction phenomenon are not particularly common at this point. Like, I think it's important to note that when you're talking about Certain aspects of the abduction, or not just the abduction phenomena, but of the UFO phenomenon, you kind of have to put it in the context of the time period. Because if you're going to say, well, this is a common feature of the abduction phenomenon. This is, this is common. That's common. Well, it became common at a certain point, sure. But before that, no. No, it absolutely was not. So, uh, you know, 1982, uh, and this was published in a different uh, periodical, not just, uh, you know, Q Form's bulletin, but I, I remember seeing it in another um, publication somewhere. I can't, I can't exactly remember. But a man who we shall call Jack T was 27 years old in 1982, and as of this writing, works as a supervisor and technician in an electronics warehouse. In his spare time, he plays a recorder in a local rock band in his hometown of St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada. He bought Bud Hopkins' book, Missing Time, in the spring of 1982, after reading it, he felt that there were some periods of time he could not remember in his own past. He wrote to Hopkins in New York City and later had three regressive hypnosis sessions under the direction of Dr. Aphrodite Kalmar at her New York office. He felt that he had gained some knowledge from the sessions after he heard the tapes played back to him in New York. When Jack got home, he heard that the MUFON UFO Symposium would be held in Toronto on the first weekend of July 1982. There, he spoke to QFORN's Eric Smith. Eric telephoned Joe Muscat, QFORN's president and co-director. Joe, too, spoke to Jack and found that he had proved normal after psychological tests in New York prior to the hypnosis there. 
Hugh Florence co-directors interviewed Jack for several hours at treasurer Harry Tokar's Toronto apartment on July 17, 1982. Jack seemed intelligent, stable, subdued, honest, and a bit nervous at meeting new people. He talked softly and looked naturally worried, yet curious, about the reasons for his encounters. Jack has recently separated from his wife. He is an only child. He is left-handed. It's great when they just start listing facts about, you know, random UFO witnesses because, like, it seems like the investigators, you know, limited in the time that they have with these individuals and such, you know, they don't, they just don't get to know them as well as, as they could. But, you know... In this case, uh, you got to add the details as you can. Maybe being left-handed plays a part. I know some people will get upset and say, oh, well, you got to include stuff like this. And it's like, well, you can say that experiences are left-handed or right-handed or whatever. I don't think it particularly adds anything to a UFO report, but hey, that's just me. Also, if you have opinions about that, I don't really want to hear it unless they're interesting. Like the thing is, is like to me and and I don't, and I don't want to be like an asshole in this, in this case, but it's just like, it doesn't, it doesn't interest me because like half the time these theories just don't have a lot of water, like don't hold water. It's the same with like the blood types when it comes to folks who, um, are, are particularly interested in like ancient astronaut theory and stuff like that. I don't think blood types have shit to do with anything. Um, you know, it is what it is, but are all or most abdu- abductees left-handed is, uh, like a question that they ask. There's a footnote. Uh, gotta go to the footnote. Gotta see what the footnote says. Are you a lefty? Fate. December 1982. This article states that Dr. Peter Bahan of Glasgow, Scotland, and Dr. Norman Geshwind of Harvard have found that lefties have an excess of testosterone, a male hormone. Like that. I'm sorry, but that doesn't prove that you're more likely to get abducted by aliens. You're left handed. That means you have more test. Like, I'm sorry, but that report just sounds bullshit bullshitty it's bullshitty sorry but it is he wanted no publicity and only agreed to relate his experiences if his name was not used in the course of the investigation we found out that the series of events had begun when jack was two years old in 1957 the others happened in 1959 1961 in 1964 or 1965 in 1969, on October 16th, 1971, and in 1976. On the Patreon, I did cover the Brian Scott abductions, and there were three particular incidences that were noted as being significant in the area of, like, abduction-like stuff, because he did have abduction experiences. He talked about how, at one point, he felt his like consciousness beamed up to another uh to an object and and such so like this is interesting we got a lot more incidences than brian did but uh 
continuing on. And and Brian, part of his uh, one of his abductions took place during the year of the humanoids. So um, that's also interesting. Uh, four occurred in the St. Catharines area. The 1957 and 1959 events were in the Owen Sound District near Georgian Bay in central, o- in central Ontario. The location of the 1961 event is unknown. Hypnosis resumed in Toronto. On July 20th, Harry Tokars phoned Dr. Susan Schulman, a competent MD, and behavioral therapist in Toronto, whose practice is restricted to hypnotherapy. She preconditioned Jack in the first session on July 24th. Afterwards, she said he was an excellent subject. The August 7th hypnosis session brought out the first event, which had occurred in the summer of 1957. Jack's mother let him do small errands for her on his stroller. Um, what? Uh, I need to read that again. What? Jack's mother let him do small errands for her on his stroller. I'm assuming that what I think of as a stroller is different than, than like, is this kid rolling down the street in in what we think of as a stroller these days and just like making deals on the street and stuff like that, because that's what I want to think that, that that's what it looks like going down. Um, you know, like that's all I can think of now as a kid who has this like motorized, uh, stroller, just like rolling down, doing deals for his mom and stuff like that. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, which was the kind that permits a child to walk by himself or herself. Okay. Um, he walked one day to a small store nearby to buy milk. On the way, he met a small silver-suited humanoid and saw a silver saucer-shaped object close at hand. Sitting on a mound, it looked like two discs, one inverted on the other. The humanoid told him it was a spaceship. Jack described the creature, quote, its hands were silver grayish. It had funny looking fingers and big black eyes. Jack had apparently caught it and another creature off guard as they were working around the object. He asked them what they were doing. One humanoid asked Jack when he ca- where he came from. The humanoid took Jack inside the craft. There was a film being run on a wall screen which the humanoids were watching. So he's interrupting humanoid, uh, you know, movie night, I guess. That's, that's pretty dope. Um, but one humanoid picked Jack up and placed him on a table. He saw different colored lights on the craft's walls, a round shelf in the middle of the floor, and an exit in front. The screen was to his right. Something was put on his wrist. They examined his mind with another device by siphoning information from his brain using a computer which had wires attached to it and to his head. The humanoid told him it was a test. Jack saw another screen, which the creatures watched while they tested him. He saw unintelligible figures, like numbers on the screen, 
They said the machines were used to examine him to see if he met the criteria for something. They removed the wrist and head bands. Jack felt very tired. The creatures took him off the table and down some steps out of the craft. They put him back on his stroller, and one creature walked with him to a point near his house. The humanoid told Jack, I have to go. The humanoid's feet were pointed straight and moved simultaneously. It glided up up the craft steps and entered it. Jack now recalled an incident that took place about two years later, 1959. He was in his Owen Sound home playing with toy blocks. Something shot, shot out from behind the couch and drew blood painlessly from his ankle in less than a minute. The device swiftly released his ankle and moved behind the couch. He told his mother he had hurt himself. She bandaged his ankle, which healed soon afterwards. So that is fucking terrifying. You've got a situation in which, in which the aliens got some tech that's just like jabbing you in the goddamn ankle out of nowhere uh, when you're just like hanging out and shit. Uh, no, thank you. Uh, pass. That is terrifying as shit. Um, uh, to be very clear, I haven't read this case ahead of time, and I am uh, scared. I am definitely scared. Gonna have some uh, nightmares this evening. Uh, it's just gonna happen. The rejection and the museum dreams. Museum in quotes. Uh, this is the title of the next section. Jack and his father, Bill, underwent a double hypnosis session on September 18th. On August 1st, Bill had told Harry Tokars and Joe Muscat of an incident which happened when he was driving near his home with young Jack in 1961. He remembered getting out of the car and being confronted by four-foot-tall humanoids who were standing in front of a landed craft. He shielded his son with his body and told him to get back into the car, saying to him, I don't know how to deal with them. Then he recalled driving and a vague memory of being stopped again. Okay, like, there is a lot just going on here, and I do not like it. This is... Uh, uh, no. Then he recalled driving in a vague memory of being stopped again. The September 18th hypnosis allowed Bill to relive the incident. These facts confirmed what Jack had said under hypnosis previously regarding this incident. However, Bill came up again against a, quote, block when the humanoids brought him to a, quote, black, shiny mirror-like entrance to the UFO, end quote. At this point, he started crying. He claimed he did this because he was rejected by the humanoids for a, quote, mission that had already been programmed into him. Oh, wow. This is... We got some vague Randy Kramer vibes here. A little bit. Um, wow. Again, I didn't read this ahead of time. This is some heavy stuff. Since then, Bill has had vivid dreams of seeing a museum of time, in quotes there, a place or a chamber where the humanoids apparently took him and where he saw a whole range of antiquated and modern technical de technological devices, 
all man-made. These included electronic sending and receiving equipment, computers, gauges, and tape machines. The devices dated from the early 1900s through the present, and there were some which looked as though they may be from our future. Interesting statement there. Okay, so we got the future tech. We're dealing with the future tech idea. We got future aliens doing future stuff. All that good future future stuff. Uh, the Black Cadillac at 12 Mile Creek. On July 24th and July 31st, 1982, hypnotic trances brought forth the 12 Mile Creek incident which had occurred near St. Catharines in the summer of 1964 or 1965 when Jack was nine or 10 years old. He and Jim Voss were playing in a deserted hilly conservation area 10 miles south of Lake Ontario. Jim spotted a humanoid and called out to Jack, who also observed it. The creature approached and mentally asked them to follow it to see something interesting. They were told that they would not be harmed. Jack described a humanoid as about four feet tall, bald, with cream-colored skin, a slit-like mouth. Uh, a slit-like mouth did not open. The nose was small. There was a small hook-shaped opening where the ears would have been. The creature's facial expressions were human-like. The head was very large in proportion to the body. The large eyes had a hypnotic quality to them and were slanted around the around to the sides of the head. The hands had four fingers, two of which were long with very wide ends. They wore shiny dark blue skin-tight uniforms and boots. The pant legs seemed to be inserted into the boots. There was a black belt. The uniform covered everything except the hands and face. It had a long collar open slightly at the chest and had no buttons or seams. An insignia on the right shoulder and one just below the left lapel appeared stenciled on and was black. Um, it basically looks like the planet Saturn with three stars around it and like a boomerang next to it, kind of like a, a, a greater than sign. So Saturn with stars greater than. The boys followed the humanoid to a nearby garage. There they were maneuvered into a used four-door black Cadillac automobile, which seemed to be air-conditioned with one-way glass in the windows. The interior was plush. They sat in the back and saw two humanoids in front. Car was driven down the dirt road to a swampy area near the Sea Cadets building. They emerged from the car and were shown a large metallic disc-shaped object on the ground. They were taken inside the dimly lit craft and placed on cots, which had wheels on them. Jack saw computer consoles along one wall and couches in the room. They were made to drink a liquid, which made them drowsy. Instruments probed their bodies. Jack saw a screen on the wall. After a few seconds, a dark spot appeared on the screen. The instrument probes were removed. 
The boys were released and told that they should forget everything because people would not believe them if they told their story. You know, that's bold of aliens to say. I'm just going to say that, you know, right up front. It's bold of aliens to freaking say, hey, you're not going to remember. Like, is that a threat? Saying, you're not going to remember anything. That's a threat, sir, in my universe. That is a 100 uh, percent total threat and i don't appreciate it the boys were put back into the car and driven back to the garage area jack remembered that inside the craft there had been two other humanoids who were shorter than the first one their uniforms were a light silvery blue with black belts the shorter creatures were like workers said jack he recalled seeing the creatures walking away from the garage Oh, we've got Bigfoot now. Bigfoot and a possible implant. Again, like 1984, implants aren't a big thing that people are talking about. Like, I I, I do not recall reading an abduction that involved an implant in the 70s or 80s. There may have been, and I just, you know, there are limits to the stuff that I've read, but that's, that's, that's wild using the word implant. Um, The various hypnosis sessions helped to trigger memories of a few other incidents. Jack was able to consciously recall an encounter which took place when he was 14 in 1969. He was with his friend, Ken Johnson, a pseudonym, in another St. Catherine's conservation area, Short Hills. He and Ken were picked up by a large... Bigfoot-type creature and taken on board a landed object. There, a Type 1 humanoid told them that they used the Bigfoot to do their heavy lifting. (laughs) I'm sorry, is that an insult? Uh, We use the Bigfoots to do our heavy lifting. Are you implying, sir, that that, that he has a weight problem? That Jack has a weight problem? That's, That's bold. That's bold, man. But you know, that is what it is. You uh, you deal with things as you deal with things. Um, Jack remembered seeing Ken on an operating table with blood issuing from his left ear and temple, while surrounded by humanoids dressed like doctors. Jack felt certain that some sort of implant was put into Ken's head. Jack felt that he too may have had an implant given him. Infrared photography done by Joe Muscat was of no use because the film was past its expiration. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. That's your excuse. The film was past its expiration date. And this was not noticed until it was too late to take more photos. We urged Jack to have x-rays taken, but he is, quote, rather lazy and not bothered to get it done. This is, like, I'm sorry, but, like, are the investigators just being straight-up assholes here? I, I don't know how to fucking take that, but... It just seems like they're being dicks about it. Like, there's no need to be a dick about shit like that. What the fuck? Um, we will try in the near future to repeat the infrared 
photography. Going to be honest, I think lazy is not checking the expiration date on the fucking film that you're using. Say shots fired if you want. That is what it is. But um, seriously, though, that's that's fucking dickish. Illness, death, and a warning uh, a warning affect researchers. What the story just gets more and more wild. Jack arrived at Dr. Shulman's office for further hypnosis on August 21st, 1982. A series of seemingly unrelated problems began that day and ended on September 18th. Jack's grandmother died on August 21st. Jack's father, Bill, was attacked by a metaphysical entity clothed in black. The attack left a black mark on Bill's chest. During the hypnosis, Jack described the exact location of the party where his band had played on the night of the van incident which is described later in this article. The doctor noticed some wavering and insecurity in Jack and gave him a shot of confidence. The fuck is a shot of confidence? What did they shoot him up with? Um, Jack was very frustrated about his inability to prove the incident was true. Jack also had some problems with his boss, something that had never happened before. Larry Fenwick got two odd phone calls at his office. One sounded like a series of tape recordings being played simultaneously, which is kind of not uncommon in certain cases uh, and in certain areas. The other was the sound of a screaming woman. Both calls came within the space of one hour on the same day. He also found out that his wife had cancer and pleurisy. Holy shit. Um, This is getting dark. As of September 18th, she had recovered from the pleurisy, and by March 1983, chemotherapy and radiation had eliminated the cancer. Well, that's good. Good for her. Harry Tokars and Sandy, his girlfriend, had a very unusual set of problems with a marketing company, which led to litigation. Sandy had medical problems and was hospitalized briefly. Harry's motion picture and television casting business was near bankruptcy, when one of his major clients, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, dropped him. The principals of CBC's casting department are all women. What does that have to do with anything? No, like, seriously, I'm calling bullshit on that. What does that have to do with anything? Fuck all three of you. His business declined by about 40%. This has since been resolved. Like, if you're going to include bullshit stuff like that, you deserve to be called out for it. Um, that literally has nothing to do with this, especially when you're trying to pin this as like, you know, aliens or some shit being responsible. Now that fucking pissed me off. Like, I'm sorry, but all three of these investigators can go fuck themselves. Joe Muscat had personal difficulties with a female coworker. Oh, here we go. Joe's wife threatened to leave him. Dr. Shulman had a, quote, horrendous argument on a Las Vegas vacation with her boyfriend and lost an unusually large amount of money gambling. Well, that's his fucking problem. Jack's mother's cat died. Like, these things literally have nothing to do with any of this. And it's just like, oh, well, we've got female problems. Oh, oh, aliens. Like, 
fuck off. This is this is so fucking like this portion is dumb. I'm sorry, but it is like case is interesting. Sexism is not. Why is it even in this article? Q Forn contacted Jack's father, Bill, who agreed to hypnosis after much prodding. On the day before the session, scheduled for September 11th, 1982, which would also see Jack hypnotized, Harry Tokars got an anxious phone call from Jack saying that he had a telephone call at work from a, quote, friend of Dr. Shulman, not the doctor's secretary. The caller said that the appointment was canceled and dodged all questions as to why, not even suggesting another appointment. Four previous attempts by Joe Muscat to reach Dr. Shulman had been unsuccessful. By the time Jack called Harry, it was clear that Dr. Shulman was avoiding contact with Q-Forn. She was absent from her office and at home for three weeks. Like, I almost don't fucking want to put fucking stock in this case at all. It's, it's, It's partially disturbing. But, like, there's shit in this fucking article that is just fucking Christ. Um, Joe Muscat and Harry Tokars went to her office on September 11th to see if they could find her. There was no sign of her. They left a note asking her to call them as soon as possible. When Harry got home at 9.30 p.m., he opened the door to find his friend Sandy holding the telephone receiver with a puzzled look on her face. She told him a rather unusual call had just ended as he walked into the apartment. A deep male voice had asked, quote, is the male of the house in? Um, apparently the, like, what the fuck? Like, okay. Like this, the, like, again, the sexism in this thing it doesn't help things, and it definitely paints this particular phone call in a light. This is official business. Tell him and them uh, and them to stop what they are doing, or else you will not be. Then the phone call was cut off. There were numbers being recited in the background during this call. Curiously, when we finally contacted Dr. Shulman two days later, she claimed she had never got our note and seemed disinterested. A session was rebooked for Jack and Bill through our own persistence. It is odd that the doctor was the one who had originally urged us to set up the appointment. The van incident. Jack and five or six other persons were returning from a party at Jenny Miller's pseudonym house in Vineland Station on October 16th, 1971 at 1.30 a.m. Most of them were members of a rock band which had been hired to play there. The band was returning to St. Catharines. Tom Irving, a pseudonym, the guitarist there, uh, arrived on September 22nd, 1982 for an appointment along with his wife, Anne-Marie, a pseudonym. While he was in preconditioning, while he was in a preconditioning session with his wife present, she went into a light trance state and said she recalled the party. Okay. 
On September 29th, Tom resisted Dr. Shulman's probing. He stated, quote, there is something there in the back of my mind all the time, like a resistance, end quote. He also, quote, vaguely recalled, quote, going off the road, maybe because of an accident, end quote. He did not recall the party. Dr. Shulman told us that Tom had a mental block, both consciously and unconsciously. We phoned Dr. R. Leo Sprinkle, rest in peace. Um, definitely uh, some controversial uh, stuff. Like, I have a lot of respect for Leo Sprinkle and, and all that he did. Um, there are definitely some cases that he lended credence to that he shouldn't have. Uh, just saying. Uh, veteran ufologist, psychologist, and director of the Division of Counseling and Testing at the University of Wyoming. He advised us on how to continue the exploration of the case and said that the personal problems we had encountered were all part of it. He said later that, quote, if you acknowledge it, it tends to taper off, end quote. Dr. Shulman had a long conversation with Dr. Sprinkle, which she said was helpful. Joe Muscat and Harry Tokars visited Tom and Anne-Marie on October 8th. She led them straight to a house in Vineland Station, where the party had been held, according to the records of Tom's engagements. The party did occur at that house on October 16th, 1971. Only she and Jack recalled the incident. Sam J, a pseudonym, the drummer, and Calvin Stoddard, a pseudonym, the bass player, offered no help. Hypnosis sessions taped at Dr. Clamar's office and Dr. Shulman's office, June 23, 1982, and September 18, 1982. Those present in the van were Jack, Calvin Stoddard, Sam J, Tom Irving, a teenager, who was being given a ride back to St. Catherine's and possibly Sam Jay's girlfriend and Anne-Marie, Tom's wife. They were driving west along the North Service Road, just 50 feet north of a main highway, the Queen Elizabeth Way. Tom was driving Jack's van. Tom spoke up as they reached the vicinity of Charles Daly Park. Quote, it looks like there's an accident ahead, end quote. Jack looked over Tom's shoulder and saw lights ahead across the road. Tom stopped the van at the roadside. He said, you'd better take a look at this. You're not going to believe it. Jack said to the doctor, quote, I saw a flying saucer on the road with lights panning back and forth all over the road. Blue lights came from the bottom and scanned the road like searchlights. There were portholes. There were little red lights around the perimeter and a dome shape on top, end quote. The object appeared to be gray, but at night it was hard to say what color it actually was. The group collectively decided to turn back and get out of the area while they could. Calvin started to make a U-turn in the middle of the road, but the steering wheel would not work. He started going toward the thing. Sam said, quote, Tom, what are you doing? Tom replied, I haven't got any more control over the van. End quote. The UFO was pulling the van toward it. It was weird. He had his foot on the brake pedal trying to stop it, but the van kept moving towards the thing very slowly. 
You didn't feel any bumps as you would if you were driving. Then the van settled on the shoulder of the road, stopped maybe 20 feet away from the UFO, and you heard all these sounds coming out of the UFO like a street sweeper makes, or a pneumatic air pressure being released with a hissing sound. Things like that. It looked hot. There was heat around it. Then Sam said to Tom, Do you see that? Tom said, Yes. He told him to be quiet. At this point, I was trying to see over the seat without being noticed. Sam kept telling me to get down. I said, What's going on? He said, There's somebody coming out of it. I could hear footsteps alongside the van. We'd all decided to keep completely still and not make any sound. I heard them trying the door, Tom's door. I could see that he was afraid. I could almost feel it, but he, but he just kept looking straight ahead without moving. He didn't look at the alien at all or whoever was trying the door. I couldn't see any face in the window, but the window right behind that was where I could see the top of the head and eyes go by. Really dark eyes, black pupils, a really strange looking head, bigger than ours. As it went by, it floated very evenly. There was no bobbing up and down like it was taking steps. It just floated by, and then it started rattling the doors at the back of the van. This guy that was in the van whom we'd picked up, they must have been working on him telepathically or something because for some reason he leaned over to the back of the door and I thought he was checking to see if it was locked, but instead he opened it, both doors open, and I saw four aliens standing outside. One, I'm trying to remember if he jumped or climbed in or what. I don't remember how he got into the van, but I guess he stepped up into the van. At this point, we were in a lot of fear. We were thinking about trying to find something to fight them with, as if we were being attacked, but the aliens came in. He put our minds at ease about an attack. It felt as though he was communicating through his eyes more than his mouth. His mouth didn't seem to be moving. When he'd look at somebody else, the volume seemed to decrease, but I could still hear what he was saying. When he looked directly at me, I could, I could understand him perfectly. He was telling us that they had no intention of hurting or being hostile that we would be unable to move or speak, and that he was doing that to us because he was afraid of his safety and the safety of his crew. He knew we were thinking about harming them. He told us that all they wanted to do was run a few tests on some of us. Jack said the humanoids had no eyebrows. The head was very large in proportion to their bodies, and the mouth was small and slit-like. Jack continued, Quote, at this point, I don't know how, but the alien tripped over the drum stand and knocked knocked over one drum. Aliens fuck it up. I dig it. Uh, Needed that break because I am terrified. Um, It rolled out of the van. One of the two aliens were standing outside the van, picked up picked up the drum and looked at it. It went. I went out carrying my bag, 
with my recorders in it. I looked at the drum and took it from the alien. He asked me what it was. I told him and pointed to Sam, the drummer, and said, and I said, quote, he plays the drums. That's bold, dude. You're pointing out like who's playing the drums on in, in your band to some aliens and they tripped over that thing? Uh, to me, shit, I don't know if what's going to happen to that guy now. I'm a little scared for him. Not going to lie. Tom walked out of the van and saw me holding the drum at the back of the van. The alien asked me if the drum was damaged. I said it was all right. Well, at least they're checking to see if there's property damage, whatever. Um, the alien tried to put the drum back on the drum stand in the van. He gave up and put it on the van's floor. The alien looked at my bag and asked what was in it. I took out one of my recorders. He asked me what it was. I didn't want to answer him. I showed him how it was played. I brought the alien back into the van. The alien told us that he couldn't test all of us because they didn't have the equipment for it or the time, so he wanted to do three of us. He said that he'd bring us back and we could go on our way when they'd finished. So we started to look around. I had gotten my fear under control. He picked Calvin and Sam and me. I followed the alien and entered the UFO. I noticed the wall inside the door. It was cold inside and black, but the wall curved and one part of the inside was lit up. There were two aliens there. One of them told me to take off my shirt, which I did. I still had one of my recorders with me. I was worried about what the aliens would do to me. They put me on the floor. There was a cot at the far end. They took Calvin, the bass man, out of the room. Sam argued. He didn't want to dis disrobe. I laughed at Sam's attempt to refuse. Dick. There was another cot near where I was, and it had instruments on it, like dental instruments, as if they were used for doing examinations. One of the aliens picked up one which looked like the handle of a contempora telephone. It was all black. He tried to demonstrate it to me. He placed it against his arm, which was covered by his sleeve. I could see through the sleeve and into his arm. All I could see was the faint outline of what looked like a bone. There was a light coming from the entire side of the tool, which seemed to act like an x-ray. Then he shone it against my right arm. There was no pain. I could see my muscles and veins, and I could see what my pulse was like as the blood pumped into the veins. The aliens told me to lie down. They shone a big light on my head. It looked like a neon light and was attached to a big arm-like machine. The beam was silvery and moved around. I got my hand in the way then, and it hurt my hand a bit. They made a cut near my ear. The machine itself looked like a dentist's machine as it moved over the top of me. It was metallic. When the thing pointed down, it looked like a drill or a knife. It had all kinds of arms on it with different devices. All the aliens were examining me with parts of the thing, checking me over, 
the rooms seemed to acquire a sense of business. Everybody seemed to be serious about what they were doing. They were all hustling about. Everybody was doing their job, different jobs. It was like an operating room. There were all these instruments on me. There were wires. They were pressing down on me on certain areas of my skin. I don't know if there was another part uh, after that or not, but they definitely seemed to have collected the information. They had left little bags that contained samples that they had taken from me, such as hair. This machine, they took it away somehow. I don't know if they wheeled it away or if it just folded up and went into the galley. They sat me up. They ha they may have made me look at the writing. They may have made me look at that writing. They wheeled me over to another part of the ship, back to where my clothes were. They had a table there that had instruments inside. They were folding them up in white cloth and putting them away, end quote. A question on religion. Quote, they asked us if we wanted to ask them any questions, that this was the time to do it. So Sam, Cal so Sam, Calvin, I don't think asked any, seemed kind of curious. He was asked where they come from. They told him it was a long way away, which is the typical alien response, like very vague. It wasn't part of our solar system, and that we wouldn't understand if they told him. Then I decided to ask them a question because, for some reason, the idea had come into my head that these beings could be angels. I didn't want to tell them that that's what I thought, but I asked them what the correct religion on Earth was. They seemed surprised. They stopped what they were doing. Two of them looked at me. They said, why did you ask that? I said, because I feel that you people are more advanced than we are in all kinds of ways, not just telepathically, but socially and probably more spiritually advanced than we are. And if anyone would know what the correct religion would be, it would be you. He said, are you a member of a religion now? I said, no, but I used to be. I was brought up in a religion. He asked me which it was, and I said, it was... I was brought up as a Jehovah's Witness, but I don't know, but I don't follow that path anymore. I don't believe in it. Is that the correct religion? He said, no. I said, well, what is? He said, there is no correct religion on earth. Then he cut me off at that point. I wanted to ask him more, but he wouldn't go into that subject with me. I kept picking up their, their thoughts but he didn't want to infer with my judgment on religious matters. They wanted to leave that up to me. They wanted to ask me to run. They wanted to ask me some run-of-the-mill questions, but I wanted to catch them off guard. Doctor Clamar asked, "How did you know which one was their leader?" Jack said, "Quote: He was the more dominant one of them all." He was the one who made all of the major moves and did all of the dirty work, like coming into the van, putting us under a spell or whatever. The other guys just sort of stood in the background and waited. He seemed to be directing everything. He had the crew trained very well. They didn't question him. They knew exactly what to do. 
They were extremely efficient. After I'd put my clothes on again, I was standing there talking to him for a while. I could see more of what he looked like at that point. I had my recorders with me. He already sent Calvin back. I wasn't sure at that time whether he had or not, but when I got back to the van, Calvin was there. Sam seemed to be more relaxed, and now he was smiling, and he said goodbye. They thanked him for coming along, so he walked back to the van. I didn't go with him. I wanted to talk to them a little more. I didn't want the experience to end. It had been very interesting for me to go through something like that. The leader was standing there by the door. He started to tell me things that that touched me, things about myself and my life. He knew that there was some kind of affinity between me and him, almost as though he was just a member of my family. I felt very close to him. Just this feeling alone made me feel sad. It was like a love, the kind of love you feel for a best friend or someone you really care for. I think this was where I started crying. I wasn't crying aloud, but it was just that it brought tears to my eyes. A musical souvenir. He told me that he'd see me again and that there was lots of work to be done and that I'd been a very good subject. He said that he was going to give me a purpose and I would be of a great help to my friends and people around me. The things that he said to me really made me feel good. He left me with a feeling of usefulness that I'd really helped him, that I really helped them. He was grateful and he said, I was so emotionally tied up with what he was saying that it's, that it really hurt, that it's really hurt me deeply. He had decided to break the tension by asking me if there was something that I wanted to show him now. I didn't want the tension to be broken at that point. I was still thinking about what he had said. I broke it off, and I remembered that I wanted to show him my recorders. So I said, I've got some musical instruments in here that I'd like to show you. And he said, could I see them? So I handed him the bag by the string. He took it by the bottom of the string. Below it, he lifted it off my hand and started to look at them. I had three or four recorders in there. The tenor, I think, the largest of my recorders, was in two pieces. I had taken it apart so it would fit better in the bag. I asked him if I could put it together to show him what it's supposed to look like. He said, yes. I walked over to him and I opened up the bag and I took the tenor out and put the mouthpiece on top of the other part. Then I showed it to him. He said, how do you play these? I played a couple of notes on it and I said, you play it by blowing air into it and covering the holes. So he looked at it. He took the other one out, the alto, and said, what is this one? How is it different? And I said, it plays a little bit higher key than the other one. The notes are a little higher, but it works basically the same. And there was the smallest one that I took out, and I showed him that one, and I, and I played a little on each for him to show him the difference. 
He seemed very interested, and then I started thinking about the little one, that maybe I should give give it to him as a gift. So I asked him. I took the bag back off of him. I had the little one in my hand and asked him if he'd like to take it back with him as a souvenir. He said, that would be fine. So I handed it to him. Then he reached out to take it from me, and I saw his hand. It was really strange. It was a really strange looking hand. It was really rough looking skin. The thumb was wide and black. The fingers, the ends were wide. They seemed to taper a little bit, but there was a bit of a fold on each of them. I was really amazed looking at his hand. As Sam was walking out of the door, he was talking to one of the aliens. I could hear their conversation in my mind. Sam asked if they had any bases in our solar system. The aliens said that they had a few, and that they had some on planets in other solar systems as well, as some here on Earth. In fact, he said, pointing toward Lake Ontario, we have one there. The 1976 incident involved Jack and his ex-wife, and was not an abduction case. It was a CE3 case. Due to his emotional attachment to her, Jack wants no details released. Um, the aliens involved, uh, just judging from the sketch, looks very much like a gray. It, it, it kind of, you could see the insignia on their um, uh, uniform on the the left side so it is like the planet saturn three stars around it and a uh uh like a greater than sign next to it uh it looks very much like a gray um with eyes that are like the eyes remind me in many ways of the uh eyes of the beings involved in the david stevens abduction like just like very large um and like they're not totally black. There's some white portion to the top of it, but um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's it's a bit interesting. Um, the, like the eye in, in the sketch that they have of this thing, it it's it, it's very it looks misshapen in many ways. Um, but we'll continue on. Um, we're getting to the end of it here. Genetic Engineering Through Mind Control Bill T. told investigators Harry Tokars and Joe Muscat of a theory he had formulated over the years since the Owens Sound automobile incident. He feels that the aliens want to eliminate, quote, corrupt blood if it exists in the family tree. Mm-hmm. The corruption is the genetic inheritance of diseases such as cancer or a history of family members having had heart trouble. The humanoids would cut off these unwanted strains from the male genes by preventing third generations of those they abduct from having male heirs. What? We're getting into, like, eugenics territory? What the fuck is this case? Um... I... This... This theory... Fuck this theory. Um... This is done by mental manipulation. Abductees are programmed to avoid marriage. What the fuck? 
Um, I don't think that's true at all. I think this is entirely bullshit. Or if they do marry, it is one whose family history shows mostly female offspring. I feel like this is bullshit. Especially, like, you know, I don't think... I don't I don't know what the split between male and uh, male-female... Um, in terms of abductees. Also, what about non-binary people? I assume they get abducted too. So like to me, this, this theory is bull bullshit. Um, uh, I'm just going to fucking skip past this because I'm already pissed off. Um, Dr. Shulman's case summary. Dr. Shulman summarized the case by saying that hypnosis alone could not determine whether the individual was telling the truth although she felt that jack believed that what he was saying was the truth she also felt that on the negative side the more detail jack gave under hypnosis the less believable i.e the more chance of fantasizing to fill in holes in the story and again that gets into problems with like every abduction case Again, she said on the negative side, Jack had read Missing Time and sought out the author, Bud Hopkins. Again, yeah, that's kind of a negative on this case. Um, on the positive side was the fact that we at QForn had to urge Jack to pursue the case further. The doctor detected, like, this doesn't seem like the doctor, um, that that that's not the doctor's determination uh okay this part is the doctor detected in him no unconscious motivation such as publicity or grandiose illusions she said that perhaps this whole thing was something beyond our comprehension speculating she suggested that the mental blocks we had met may actually have been inserted by good forces what the fuck does that mean and that we are playing with fire and may hurt something or someone. I couldn't read that because it was in um, italics and my brain was, and I was like further away. Comments from Dr. Leo Sprinkle. Dr. Leo Sprinkle, psychologist and ufologist, wrote to Harry Tokars on November 23rd, 1982, quote, I am impressed with the observations which you and your colleagues have noted in the ongoing investigation. I am familiar with these types of observations, although the comment about interference through the women was new to me and fascinating. Oh, fuck you. Bullshit. I agree with the notion that the phenomenon fosters belief in actions, but does not yield to logical analysis. Like the sexism in this story has truly pissed me off. Like I am pissed, pissed. And the fact that one guy is agreeing with it. No, no, there is no basis for what they're fucking saying. At all. I'm just pissed off. I am livid. Um, as you know, my feeling is that the best principle is to follow the three steps. Become aware, accept, and acknowledge the presence of the intelligent beings in our lives. Then we can find out what our, quote, mission or task or project may be. I offer you my best wishes for continued investigation, and I'll be glad to correspond with you about further comments or questions. I hate everything about this article. I do. 
the the case is kind of interesting again like a lot of shit seems to be suspect here a lot does like the guys that are writing it are kind of like they're sexist for one um like the, the like that's sexist bullshit half of the shit coming out of that is sexist bullshit and i'm i'm annoyed it's annoying um also like the calling the dude lazy and shit um yeah i'm i don't really know what to think of that story it carries with it a lot of the hallmarks that are in a lot of abduction stories that have come after it and, and such, and that have become uh, homogenous indicators of uh, the points in which um, a lot of these things are, I don't even know what I'm fucking saying at this point. There, there's a lot of homogenous factors that play into this case in particular and what the abduction phenomenon would become in the late eighties throughout the nineties and um, kind of up until today, because like abductions still occur. They just, they aren't reported in on uh, mass anymore because most of the investigators are uh, not with us anymore. And kind of the one, there are those that are doing good work out there. Um, but yeah, this, this story is, it's, it's interesting and it's, it's pissed me off, but that's where this is. Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to follow along on social media, if you want to uh, buy some merch in the T public shop, there's a lot of great designs in there. You can totally pick that up. Uh, if you want to know how to subscribe to our Patreon, hit the link tree in the show notes. It's the last link that you'll find and it'll bring you to all of that and all the other projects that I got going on right now. Uh, if you're interested in the sources for this episode, you could also find those in the show notes. We'll be bringing back the website shortly and we'll probably be taking all of the, the, uh, the, the heavy bulk of the show notes and putting it on the website. Well, uh, kind of like we did the last time. So all the links to the sources and stuff. And what I want to do is I want to create a resource page for you all. So if you're interested in like the, the resources that I pull from, uh, I created a Twitter thread a while ago. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put on the website, the, the sources that I use for a lot of this stuff. So um, look out for that. I'll update y'all on a future episode when the website finally goes back up. There's a lot of uh, stuff on the horizon here at Our Strange Skies, so uh, uh, just stay tuned for all of that. Special thanks to Megan Lagerberg uh, for our logo, to Floats for the use of their song UFO as the theme song for this podcast. Uh, special thanks to Spencer Worth Davis for editing, sound design, all that good stuff. Um, for those that don't know and, and don't follow along on social media, we, we signed to a network. It's called Duvid Media. And uh, I am really excited to be uh, partnered with a network that believes in what we do, is actively 
doing everything to improve this podcast as much as possible and uh, has uh, afforded me um, some new avenues to do some really fascinating stuff. So um, just stay tuned for a lot of great stuff that's coming down the pike. Uh, And one final thank you to the great Desdemona who has done our logo before, who has done the majority of our t-shirt designs in the T public shop and, uh, who's just a, a, a great friend. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or out the windows on the Moody Blues In gray, we trust. Duvid Media.